And it's really both a joy and a pleasure and a privilege to be here at Gaia House. I've um, taught here before, not for a while, and in the in-betweening years I've sat here, in the in-between years. I've done my own personal retreat here the last few years, and I find it a wonderful place to practice. Um, so I hope, especially for those of you who might be new to Gaia House, I hope that you also find it a, a wonderful place to um, relax, become present, become awake, to pay attention, and to see what's true. See what's true in your own heart and mind. What I would like to do is to work with the theme of this retreat over the in the evenings, very specifically. I would like to address the theme of illuminating the awakened heart. And I will talk about it specifically in the talks tonight, tomorrow, Sunday, and then earlier on Monday. I'll begin, though, by saying a little bit about the form of the retreat, the form of silent retreat. <clears throat> it's actually not quite accurate because it's not actually a silent retreat. It just means mostly we won't be interacting in the usual way, in the conventional way. We won't be socializing. We won't be speaking in that way. But actually, I'll do a fair amount of talking tonight and in the morning instruction, and, and there'll be some time for us to meet also where we'll be talking. Um, but the, the, the spirit of the silence will pervade the retreat. The spirit of this hall, you can hear it when we're silent, when we sit here and it's quiet, will hopefully pervade the retreat. The silence that, um, one way you might consider it or think about it is that the silence holds the retreat, even holds when we're speaking. Um, the retreat form is very, very simple. It's a very simple form. If you've seen the schedule, you could have memorized it by now, right? There's basically three things on the schedule, maybe four. We're going to sit, and we're going to walk. We're going to sit, and we're going to walk, and we're going to sit, and we're going to walk. We're going to eat. And we're going to sit and walk, and sit and walk, and then eat again. And we'll sit and walk some more, and then we'll have a talk, and then we'll eat, and then we'll sit, and then we'll talk, and then we'll sit and walk some more. The bareness of the schedule is its power. We withdraw from our usual involvement. We withdraw from our usual engagement. We withdraw from the conventional um, preoccupations, responsibilities of our life. 
and we withdraw not because they're bad or there's something wrong with our engagements, our responsibilities, our lives. We withdraw as part of the cycle of practice. The, one, the cycle of practice being sometimes withdrawal and sometimes engagement. Taking time for what's traditionally called seclusion and then taking what's learned, what's understood, what's awoken, awakened, awakened is probably more accurate, awakened in contemplative time like this, and then acting from that awakening. So that the awakening that happens here is, in some sense, never done exactly, or never finished. It's always the beginning of then letting that awakening infuse our life, infuse our family life, and our community life, and our work life, so that what happens here is not isolated. And then taking that, letting that mature in, in the worldly form, and then again taking times for seclusion. So the form is silent in the sense of we won't be engaging in the normal interactive relational way that we do conventionally. Um, it's simple in that we you don't have much responsibility. Your responsibility here, your primary responsibility is to pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening now. We don't have to go any further than that. We don't have to, I don't have to give you any more instruction than that in some sense. Pay attention to what's happening in your body now. Pay attention to what's happening in your heart now. Pay attention to what's happening in your mind now. It, it's very simple. I should stop the talk right now. That would be really, really the way to do it. But I'm not really a Zen teacher, so I don't, I'm not going to do that. But it's the simplicity of the form that basically we ask you, and in the form of retreat that uh, mostly I teach, um, in Spirit Rock um, and in, in America. Um, we ask you not to speak, also not to read particularly. And there's a wonderful library here, Gaia House, that we're going to ask you not to engage in. Also, basically not to write, not to journal, um, not because there's anything wrong with reading or writing, but because we have this very rare opportunity to live very, very simply and pay attention. And so we don't want to complicate it. We don't want to add anything except what's happening now. What are you experiencing now? And to learn how to find our balance or our ground or our composure in each moment no matter what's happening. Because we're not trying to control what's happening. 
we're not trying to fix what what is happening or what will happen moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. What the movement of practice is is to awaken in each moment, to begin to see clearly, to begin to see kindly, to begin to see with wisdom the truth of the way things are. And the way things are, are presenting themselves to us, not in books, not in writing, but in this experience of sitting in your seat right now. This is, this is the value in this style of retreat. It's what's happening right on your cushion or on the bench that you're sitting on or in the chair that you're sitting in. Actually, you're the value. It's really beautiful in Buddhism that way, that you are what is of value here. And, and the instructions, the guidelines, the teachings are all to begin to pay attention to what's already here, sitting in your seat. Now, the one piece I want to say about the simplicity of form, the simplicity of not doing much, the simplicity of being, is that it's deceptive. Simple doesn't mean easy. Simple means simple, bare, unencumbered, uncomplicated. But it's not so easy, our training, the way we've been trained, we've been trained many different ways, sometimes to be analytic or practical or logical or rational. We're generally not trained to be present with experience and let it unfold on its own. We're trained to think about it, to react to it, to do things, to change it. And those are all appropriate in their time and place. They have their time and place. But to broaden our training, which meditation is, it's a training, is to begin to learn how to be present with experience without grasping it, without pushing it away, without denying it and without being in the thrall of the experience. And so the simplicity is very beautiful, but it's also difficult for us at times. It'll be very important not to be critical of when it's difficult for you. The criticalness is one of the trainings we've learned, how to relate to ourself and experience. Sometimes I think of meditation practice as a retraining, that we're retraining ourselves, not only to be with our experience in a, um, a wise way, but also to be with ourself, to be with how we relate to ourselves. We relate to our confusion, how we relate to our difficulties, how we relate to our suffering. 
Do we relate kindly? Do we relate wisely? Or do we relate critically, harshly, meanly, demeaningly? More often we're trained in the latter than the former. Buddhism asks us to retrain, to, to actually find the Buddha within, the Kuan Yin within, these two images that are behind me, to really see that they're within us. They are our possibility, our potential, and truly our ground of who we are. And so part of meditation practice is to pay attention. And part of it is also to become more deeply, more fully, more immediately who and what we are in essence. And the theme of the, this retreat, Illuminating the Awakened Heart, I'll read you a poem. It's from the Zen poet, Zen master Ryokan. He said, even if you consume as many books as the sands of the Ganges, it is not as good as really catching one verse of Zen. If you want the secret of Buddhism, here it is. You ready? <laughs> we don't get the secret of Buddhism every day. If you want the secret of Buddhism, here it is. Everything is in the heart. Everything is in the heart. So, in some sense, the way I, or, or maybe more accurately, the way I think about this retreat is that we'll be doing a Vipassana retreat. We'll be doing a mindfulness retreat from the perspective of the awakened heart that will be invoking the qualities of the awakened heart, of the heart that's here when the heart is unencumbered or uncovered, the, the natural heart our natural heart. And it's not something you need to create. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to create it. Actually, you don't even have to fix it. You may, we may be tending to it in a certain way. We may be uncovering it. But it's our nature. It's a natural expression of our nature you could consider the question or the inquiry of what's here, what is your experience when greed, when aversion, when confusion are absent? What's here when suffering is absent, when clinging is absent, when craving or grasping or pushing away? What's actually here? And what I would suggest to you is what's here is the awakened heart, the qualities of the awakened heart, the qualities of love, of friendship, of kindness, of care, compassion, of joy, delight, happiness, and serenity balance, equanimity. 
the Buddha said, this holy life, practitioners, does not have gain, honor, or renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit. And it's interesting that the Buddha is saying this, even though these are important parts of the path, virtue, concentration, but he says for its benefit, that it's not for virtue, not for concentration, or knowledge, or vision for its benefit, but it is for this unshakable deliverance of heart that is the goal of the holy life, its heartward and its end. The realization, the uncovering, the unveiling of our true heart. And he's using this term, that the word that is translated from is chitta. And what's beautiful about the word chitta and the understanding in the Buddhist time, and I believe still in Asian culture, is that chitta means both heart and mind. That there wasn't this split or the separation in the way that we've separated heart and mind. And so it's not like, oh, you have to get rid of your mind for your heart to be awakened. No, it's part of, part of that awakening of heart is the awakening of mind. Now, we may not be so preoccupied with our discursive mind, or the analytic mind, or even the rational mind, but it doesn't mean we have to get rid of them or deny them. That part of the awakening includes the mind, and if you trace back the etymology of mind, which I asked a friend of mine who's an etymologist to do once, she told me some very interesting things that I think are relevant to this, which is that originally in the Greek, the mind was not here. It was not up in the head. The mind was in the torso. And... and um, the implication or the, the quality of what mind meant was to embrace things. And it was much more like, like the way we talk about to hold something in mind, which is much more the flavor of mindfulness itself, that we hold things in mind, we hold experience in mind and in heart. Because there's no true mindfulness without heartfulness, and vice versa. If, my, if there's mindfulness without kindness, it's not seen clearly. And if there's a kind of emotionality without any uh, wisdom, it's also not seen clearly. And they need each other. The mind and heart are not so separate. I'll read to you the teachings of the Brahma Vihara. Maybe I should say a word or two about that phrase, because that's really the source of our inspiration for this retreat, and the source, it's, it's the invocation that we are setting into motion just by considering this, just by 
beginning to incline our heart and mind in this direction that we're invoking the teachings of the Brahma Bihara. And Brahma means God or God godlike, and Vihara is abode or home or and so the Brahma Vihara is considered the Brahma Viharas are considered the God realms or heavenly realms. Or in Buddhism it's also the place of divinity. And there's not a lot of talk about the divine in Buddhism. But especially when as we move towards the Brahma Viharas, we're moving towards the divine. And so sometimes Brahma Vihara is translated as the divine abode or the sublime abode. Because when the heart is free in this way, it's as if we're we're as if like God. That our our nature has become godlike. That we live in the realm of the gods. And the Buddha this is the basic text on the four divine states. He says the practitioner um, what, uh, excuse me, here a practitioners, bhikkhus, which means practitioners. A disciple dwells pervading one direction with one's heart filled with loving kindness. Likewise, the second, third, and fourth direction. So above, below, around, one dwells pervading the entire world, everywhere and equally with one's heart filled with loving kindness. Abundant grown great, measureless, free from enmity and free from distress. This is the teaching of metta, of loving kindness. And he goes on, he says, Bhikkhus, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with one's heart filled with compassion. Likewise, second, third, and fourth direction, above, below, around. One dwells pervading the entire world everywhere and equally, with one's heart filled with compassion, abundant, grown great, measureless, free, free from enmity and free from distress. And then he continues with joy. He says, uh, one dwells pervading um, every direction with joy, above, below, around, pervading the entire world equally and everywhere with one's heart filled with joy. Abundant, grown great, measureless, free. And then he, the fourth Brahma Vihara, a disciple dwells pervading one direction with one's heart filled with equanimity. The second, third, and fourth direction, above, below, around. One dwells pervading the entire world, everywhere, equally, with one's heart filled with equanimity. Abundant, grown great measureless, free. This is the understanding, the teachings of the awakened heart in Buddhism. The heart that's been freed, the heart that's uncovered, unshackled, unveiled. And it's a beautiful teaching. It, it understands the uh, basis in, of the Brahma Viharas is metta, is this kind of unconditional friendliness towards all things, towards all beings, a kind of warmth. And, and the 
understanding is that these four different um, qualities of, of, um, of love, of kindness, of um, delight, um, and serenity or equanimity are, are all the qualities of one heart. That the heart has this capacity, this, I think of it as a morphic capacity to respond to reality when it's um, unveiled, when it's unshielded, when it's, the heart is awake. That then when the natural response of the awakened heart is, is to be friendly and warm towards people, being the world. When there's suffering, the heart naturally responds with compassion and kindness. It's, it's its natural capacity. It's not something we have to do. It's not something we have to create. If, if we free the heart, it will respond naturally. And then when it's ple pleasant, pleasurable, there's good things happening, there's joy. Joy is natural. Joy is spontaneous. The beauty of the day, the sun coming out, the flowers blooming, the bunnies bunnying. You know, I, I really like the bunnies here. I have to say, we don't have bunnies at Spirit Rock. We have green and we have trees and birds, but we don't have bunnies. Bunnies are great. And, and the heart responds quite naturally. And then this other quality of heart, which is uh, the first three qualities have, a, have an emotional correspondence in our daily life, right? Love and kindness and joy. Um, equanimity is, is maybe unique in that sense, it, in the West at least. I don't think we really think about that as a heart quality. But the understanding of the wisdom of the heart, the wisdom of the heart or the heart-mind, to see the way things are. So that these first three qualities are not simply emotions. They are at another octave than emotions. They are at the octave of the sublime, or the divine, or the godlike. And the, the beauty of the understanding of the heart is that each each quality is important and each balances the other. That the for example the joy um, keeps the compassion from becoming melancholy or the warmth or the love and the friendliness of metta keeps the equanimity from becoming too dry, distant detached, um, separate. They need each other. They're all part of one heart's expression. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, freedom is nibbana. The realization of that non-grasping state in which we experience true kindness, friendship, compassion, joyfulness, and serenity.
for this evening, mostly I'm wanting to say a little bit about the metta, about the loving-kindness. Let me say one other thing first, that the Brahma-viharas are also taught, and actually usually taught, as an intensive meditation practice, so that you can go on retreat, and usually it's usually with some time, and do intensive mental practice for at least a week or, you know, sometimes months, or, or Brahma-vihara practice where you'll practice these, it's not mindfulness practice, it's a certain kind of concentration practice um, that's very beautiful, very powerful, and if you're interested, I would encourage you, please, follow your heart that way and do some intensive Brahma-Vihara practice. We're not going to do that kind of concentration practice here this weekend. We're going to do mindfulness practice, hopefully invoking the flavor, the essence of the Brahma-Viharas, that it may infuse how we pay attention, how we do mindfulness. And so instead of, um, in the intensive form, we'd be repeating certain phrases, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering, um, may I have joy in the causes of joy, uh, may I understand the way things are. These are various phrases that are used in the Brahma-Viharas. And, and we would just repeat them over and over again. At every sitting, every walking, that's the practice. And we'll do a little bit of that, a teeny bit. But much more it's the flavor of beginning to invoke or invite these qualities into our mindfulness practice. And so in that way, what I would encourage you to consider is what would it be like to practice mindfulness, to pay attention and notice when these qualities are present. So, let's say metta, loving-kindness, which the root of the word maitri in the Sanskrit and mita in the Pali, um, the root of the word means friend. The root of the word metta means friend generally translated as loving-kindness, but uh, it's also translated as friend or friendliness. And so one of the guidelines I would like to give you for how to practice mindfulness is to be friendly towards your experience, towards whatever is happening. Can you be simply friendly towards whatever is here? Instead of thinking it shouldn't be here, or I don't want this to be, what would it be like to be friendly to whatever's happening? Doesn't matter. If you're with the breath, be friendly towards the breath. If you're lost in thought, can you at least be friendly towards that? If you have a pain in the knee, can you be friendly towards the pain in the knee? If there's sorrow in the heart, can you be a little bit friendly towards your experience? If you start being hard on yourself, can you start to be friendly towards yourself? You know, the Dalai Lama lives very beautifully this quality of metta that I'm describing as friendliness. 
he says when he goes around the world meeting people everywhere, he meets a lot of people, that he meets each person as if they're an old friend. Which, when, you know, and that I'll send you home with that instruction to see what that's like. But for now, can we meet each moment as if it's an old friend? Or even a new friend. I don't, either way you want to do it, it's fine with me. But to see if we can bring this quality of metta into our mindfulness practice. And the same with the other qualities. When we're suffering, can we bring a quality of compassion in? Can we be kind to ourselves? When we're happy, when we're content, when there's ease or beauty, can we enjoy? And enjoy your enjoying. Don't think, oh, I shouldn't enjoy, I'll get attached. Don't worry about that. If you get attached, you'll suffer and then you can <laughs> bring the compassion. But, and, and I'm kidding a little, but I'm also serious because I've seen a little too much of aversion to the pleasant or the pleasurable because people are afraid they'll get attached. And that's aversion. Um, and in fact, some of the instruction I hope to give, and in part, is how to use the pleasurable, the pleasant, what's um, delightful, as a doorway to deepening of practice with the mindfulness. The what I'm calling these days the wise use of pleasure in mindfulness, because um, it's one of the qualities of what deepens practice is a kind of relaxation and joy and delight in practice. It's one of the qualities that will deepen concentration, is our delight and enjoyment in what's actually happening. So this quality of loving-kindness, to let it, let it begin to surface, let it, letting ourselves begin to be friendly towards this experience of sitting in your seat, towards the body, a body that has its quirks or its difficulties or its pains or its suffering, to begin to be friendly a bit to your emotional heart, the heart that suffered, that suffered from pains or losses or hurts or betrayals or, you know, the whole myriad uh, um, array of suffering that we go through as human beings with a sensitive heart. Can we begin to be friendly towards this part of ourselves? Can we actually begin to be friendly towards our mind that chatters on and on and tells us all these things that we're good or we're bad or we're whatever it's saying? You know, keeping us company is mostly what it's doing. Can we actually begin to have a friendly attitude, even towards our mind, that we don't have to be in a contentious relationship with reality. That the doorway for us this weekend is not to be contentious with our experience, but to begin to accept our experience, to be friendly towards it, to embrace it as, as in the Greek, to hold in mind, to hold in heart all of our experience.
Thich Nhat Hanh talks about metta or maitri in Sanskrit is mostly translated as loving kindness but he prefers just the word love he says some Buddhist teachers find love too dangerous words words sometimes get sick and we have to heal them he said we have been using the word love to mean appetite or desire like I love fish and chips or I love Manchester United or I love the Liverpool team that just won right we may need to use language more carefully love is a beautiful word we have to restore its meaning and part of its meaning is this friendliness this warmth this natural care for reality for this ephemeral changing transparent reality that not only is we see and we experience but that we are that we are an expression of like like everything <coughs> so I will also want to say a few very practical things about how to practice how to practice mindfulness, how to practice in this form. Right effort includes a kind of dynamic tension between effort and relaxation. Might be a little too relaxed sometimes. But sometimes, mostly people seem to fall into the, the side of the road of being tight, of striving in a way where there's a lot of tension. And the, dyna- the dynamism of the tension that I'm describing is not about a physical tension or a, or a mental tension, it's about an aliveness. It's like riding a bike. You know, if you don't have enough effort, you'll fall over. But if you have too much effort, you'll also fall over. Now, when, at, when we ride a bike and we make what we would call right effort or skillful effort in Buddhism, it's graceful. It's fun. It has a sense of ease and energeticness and energetic quality. But it's not a tension or not a tightness that there's a balance, there's a sense of serenity or equanimity is part of that effort. And so sometimes when we're going downhill we actually slow down a little because it can be too fast. You know, and then the bike will get out of control. Or sometimes um, um, going up the hill we want, we want to add a little more effort to keep going. But we don't want to just get tight. The effort's not to get tight or tense. So if you see you're getting tighter, tense, do whatever you can to relax without, but don't stop being energetic in some way. Don't simply be in, relaxed does not mean indulge, just as 
just as um, uh, effort doesn't mean tension, relaxation doesn't mean indulgence. And so then part of the both fun and investigation of meditation is, oh, how do we do this like riding a bike, like swimming? It's the same in swimming. If you don't have enough energy, you'll sink. But if you're too tight, you'll just start splashing the water. One time I taught um, a Tibetan Rinpoche, Sokni Rinpoche, which may, maybe some of you know Sokni. I taught Sokni Rinpoche how to swim. There's not a lot of pools in Tibet or Nepal, so he never knew. And he, somebody had tried to teach him and he hurt himself. And, and somebody at Spirit Rock knew that I'd, I'd done a lot of swimming. And they asked me if I ever taught swimming. And I said, why? And they said, well, Sokni Rinpoche wants to learn how to swim. And I said, oh, yeah, I could teach him. I've never taught anybody. And, um, but I thought I could do it. So, and I, you know, I got in the pool with Rinpoche and, you know, I said, okay, can you relax? And, and he couldn't relax. I mean, that's all he teaches is relaxation. <laughs> Uh, and, and so I held him, you know, and got him to relax a little bit. Then I said, okay, put your head in the water. And he put his head in the water and he came up, fear, 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 fear. Just, and he was totally un, um, um, uninhibited about exactly what was happening. He put his head in the water, fear, he just got up, fear, fear, fear. And, and I tried a bunch of different ways. I actually couldn't get him to relax. And then finally I, I hit on something that worked, which is, uh, you know, Sokni Rinpoche is a master of consciousness, really. He's a master meditation teacher, if you've ever sat with him. And so I said, okay, Rinpoche, you have to, you have to learn by osmosis. And we have to get the translator to figure out that. He said, I said, I want you to osmote me. I want, I'm going to do it and you imitate not just what I do, but the state of what I'm doing. The relaxation in what I'm doing. And he took him a while. He said, oh, you want me to absorb you? I said, yeah, absorb me. And then I would, I would float and he would just stay there with me, be present, and then he would float. And then I would start doing a little paddling and he would just stay and absorb me and get the consciousness of it and then he would do it. And in 15 minutes he was swimming. It, it, was, it was beautiful. And so in some sense you might invoke your own inner teacher about some area of life where you know how to be very energetic and relaxed at the same time. Maybe in your garden. Maybe for some of you in how you study when you read history or something you love. Usually it's something you love. So it could be riding a bike or dancing or painting. For some people they actually know it in their expression of their sexuality. That there's an energy and a relaxation and a delight. And then to invoke some of that in your meditative practice. To really see, well, how can I, how can I sit here with whatever's happening and relax and stay present and be friendly with it? So that we're very serious, but we're also light. There's both qualities. 
I'm, I'm going to keep presenting you with these paradoxes because ultimately I believe paradox and spiritual practice is the resolution of paradox which is not that they go away but that we embody the paradox we understand paradox not with our cognitive mind but with our heart mind it's really helpful to be wholehearted to give yourself to the retreat it doesn't mean you can control what happens it means you're going to give yourself to whatever's happening and see what happens it's a it's an adventure in that way and the dharma is a great adventure if nothing else it's an adventure into who and what we really are truly are remember it, here's another paradox in terms of practice we make a lot of effort we do this sitting and walking we take on this arbitrary form we, we're silent we do it but the paradox is we don't do the Dharma we do our practice the Dharma does us if we do our part and I trust this very deeply from my own practice if we do our part the Dharma will do its part we don't we don't do the results of our practice we do our practice as best we can and then the results come not in our agenda not on our timeline not in even really what we believe it's going to be the Dharma will reveal itself because this is the place where the Dharma reveals itself no place else in this precious human life Um, if you want to have a really difficult retreat have a lot of expectations okay if you want to have just a normal retreat which will be sometimes good and sometimes difficult or sometimes easy then as best you can let go of all expectations we don't know what's going to happen here we really don't know it's an adventure Suzuki Roshi said when he realized when he realized that no moment could be repeated no moment no experience could be repeated he was awakened so you all have been sitting for quite a while what I'd like to do is take a 10-minute break, stretch, catch the last of the sun for right now, or the, the light, go to the bathroom, um, come back. We'll do a little bit of formal ritual, taking the precepts and the refuges, and then we'll do the first sitting of the retreat. Okay? Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.